four stories, three reflections on God's heart, and one question for all of us. But first, this is the third Sunday in the season of Lent. What better time of year than to ask for a little help? I've asked my friend Jana if she would read for us from a German theologian named Helmut Thielicke. Uh, Jana, several months ago, was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she, with her husband Travis and their sweet little ones, have been fighting courageously for some time. Uh, welcome, my friend Jana. Hi, Peller friends. Thank you so much for all the prayers, the uh, thoughts, the goodies and cards that we received over the last few months. It means so much to me and to my family. I have two more chemo treatments left and then on to radiation. Um, and, you know, we're doing well, but do continue to appreciate the support that you give us. We look forward to seeing you uh, live in person soon, hopefully. And so listen to this from a Ger German theologian named Helmut Thielicke. Humanity is not valuable because we love God. Humanity is valuable because God loves us. It's good to see her smiling face even in a chemo room. So good to see her, but I don't want you to miss what she said. Humanity is not valuable because we love God. Humanity is valuable because God loves us. God loves us. That's Lent. I've also asked my friend Anna. Anna's a younger one from the Pillar community. Uh, Anna is bright. I don't just mean like intellectually. I mean her spirit is bright. She walks into a room and she lightens it up with her presence. She also happens to be a phenomenal hockey player. Uh, she's going to read for us from a book by Eugene Peterson titled Tell It Slant. Listen to Anna. Hi, Pillar friends. My name is Anna Vonk, and I am super excited to worship God with you today. Listen to this quote from Tell It Slant by Eugene Peterson. The church is the primary arena in which we learn that glory does not consist of what we do for God, but in what God does for us. What God does for us. What God does for us. That's Lent. So four stories Three reflections on God's heart. One question for all of us. They're from Luke 15. Listen carefully. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Which of you, if you had a hundred sheep and lost one of them, would not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for the sheep I lost has been found. Just so. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. 
Or what woman, having ten coins and losing one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so there will be more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said, Father, give to me the property that will belong to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered his belongings and set out to a distant country and squandered the property in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land And he was in need. He he hired himself to a citizen of the country who sent him into one of his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have satisfied himself with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired hands in my father's house have bread and more to spare? And yet here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your slaves. So he got up and he set out to his father. And when his father saw him still at a far distance, he was moved with compassion and he ran to him and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And the younger son said, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to one of the slaves, get a robe, the best one, and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. We must eat and celebrate for My son who was dead is now alive and was lost but is now found. And so they began to celebrate. The elder son was out in the field. And as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing and asked one of the slaves what was going on. And the slave said, your brother has come home and your father killed the fatted calf because he's back safe and sound. And the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. The father came out and began to plead with him, but the elder son said, Father, all these years I've worked like a slave for you and have never disobeyed any of your commandments, yet this son of yours devours your property with prostitutes and yet you kill the fatted calf for him? You haven't even given me a small goat to celebrate with one of my, with my friends. And the father said, son, you've always been with me. All that I have is yours. But this son of mine was dead, is now alive, was lost and is now found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Luke 15, four stories uh, in succession, each narrowing their focus, increasing their intensity until we're forced to face a single question, what will we do? What will we do? Let's take each story one at a time. 
Uh, the first story, the story of the lost sheep. A, a shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one of them, leaves the 99 in the wilderness, goes after the one, and when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoices, calls together his friends and neighbors, and they have a party. Uh, the context that precedes the story helps us understand the story. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who lost a sheep. The shepherd becomes a narrative image of the Father's heart, God the Father's heart, who goes out on the run, who sends his Son, the perfect expression of God's heart, Jesus Christ. He sends him on the run to seek us out and to track us down. He leaves the eternal communion of Trinitarian joy, enters into the finite realities of creatureliness. He takes on humanity. He suffers. He dies only to rise again so that we might have life, full, whole, beautiful life. So that those who are left out, left out because of the social systems and the religious structures, those who break the rules and know they're breaking them, those who break the rules but didn't know the rules, those who don't even have access to the rules might have access to God's heart. What was it about Jesus that tax collectors and sinners, the rule breakers, were attracted to him. They gathered around him. What was it about Jesus? And if it's true of Jesus, might it, could it, maybe we ought to try to make it true of us too? You don't have to take my assessment, but there, there's rumors out on the streets that maybe the church hasn't always reflected the radical, prodigious hospitality of the Father's heart. Um, I'm going to get a little prickly with you. Uh, Tim Keller, in a book titled The Prodigal God, the kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Now, all the tax collectors... And sinners came near to listen to him. What was it about Jesus? I mean, I, you could say, well, he was healing people, so who, who wouldn't want to at least watch it, let alone maybe experience it? But that's not what Luke says. He says they came near to listen to him. What was it about Jesus? And not to mention, the, the healing narratives in the Gospels are not meant to identify who got healed, but rather the one who heals the one who heals is also Lord. What was it about the lordship of Jesus Christ that attracted people's affection? And might it, could it, maybe it, we could strive to make it true of us too? You've probably heard that phrase, that famous phrase from Gandhi. Uh, 
uh, Indian nonviolent Buddhist uh, resistor to British imperialism. I'd be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. Uh, I tracked that phrase down. I was wondering, really? Uh, so here, here's the story uh, that goes with it. One Sunday morning, Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Upon seeking the entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by the ushers. He was told he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church as it was for high-caste Indians and whites only. He was neither high-caste nor was he white. Because of the rejection, Gandhi turned his back on Christianity. With this act, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by the sin of segregation that was practiced by the church. It was due to this experience that Gandhi later declared, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for the Christians. Now all the tax collectors and sinners came near to listen to him. God's extravagant, prodigious, wonderful hospitality makes space for those who break the rules, don't know the rules, don't even have access to the rules. Could that? What if that were true of the church? A second story. A woman has ten coins. She loses one of them. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it and she throws a party. Each of the four stories, the sheep and the coin and the younger brother and the older brother, are placed in succession, a sort of funnel effect. First, there's 100. And you lose one sheep, not a terribly big deal. You've got 99. It's just a piece of property anyway. But the shepherd goes after the one sheep. Pretty impressive. Then there's 10 coins. The funnel effect happens. There's 10 coins and she loses one of them, it's, it's an object, but 10% of your savings or 10% of your income is a kind of a big deal. And then there's two, two brothers, and then there's one, the elder brother. There's this funnel effect. Jesus starts with property, sheeps, and objects, coins, to open our heart of sympathy. How much more, if you and I would care about a sheep or a coin, how much more could we, would we care for a human being made in the image of God? I mean, for Pete's sake, we put our lives at risk driving down the road searching for our iPhones that fell between the seat and the console. We complain to the world about the sock that never came back out of the dryer. We call around our neighborhood to find the Tupperware that was lost at last summer's block party. If that's how much we care about those things that are lost, how much more about a precious tender made in the image of God human being the funnel effect of the stories are inviting us to ask that question, how much more, which sounds an awful lot like something else Jesus once said. If this then is how he clothed the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Uh, we have a little routine in our home during the week, at least. Uh, first Tabitha, she's the 13-year-old. She wakes up on her own. She's ready for school. She loves school. I go to check on her about 6.45. She's up and at him and ready to go. Lydia, the 15-year-old, not so much. I pull her 
out of bed, fighting and screaming. I pull her teeth in hopes that she'll brush at least one of them. And then I drive Tabitha to the middle school, and then I drive Lydia to the high school, and then I come home and I wake up Mariah. She's the uh, 10, almost 11-year-old. Get her going again, pulling teeth to get the brush the teeth, and then I bring her uh, to the elementary school on Wednesday. As I was earlier that morning, I'd been thinking about this passage, Luke 15, and how much more a human being made in the image of God. Mariah and I are driving to school. It was a good morning. We were laughing together. We were saying our prayers on the ride together. I get to the elementary school. There's two lanes for traffic. The right lane next to the curb people use to park. I don't know if they're supposed to, but they do. They park there. So then the left lane becomes the sort of pass-through lane where you get up to the crosswalk, you drop your kid off, they walk the crosswalk to the playground. Well, on this day, I saw a young mom holding the hand of a very young boy. I'm going to guess five or six years old. She was standing in the green grass island. I could see the grass. The snow was melting. She was standing in the green grass island next to the crosswalk. I pulled up to the crosswalk. She started approaching the car. I assumed to walk in front of it, but she came right at it. So I rolled down my window, and she started yelling. You can't stop here. You can't stop here. So I did what every good Christian pastor would do. I rolled up my window and I stopped the car. She started tapping on the window with her fingernail louder and louder. You can't stop here. You can't stop here. Mariah was scared. I said, I love you, sweetie. Have a great day. And then I, again, I I did what a good Christian would do. I started sarcastically saying, thank you. Good job. Thank you. And I I drove on. And my heart is beating and my blood pressure is at an all-time high. And I'm I'm having these conversations in my head with this young mom who's got so many problems. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to call the principal and tell on her. I'm going to tell on the mom in the green grass next to the crosswalk. And I think to myself, what was I going to do this morning? Oh, yeah. How much more Does he care for a human being made in the image of God? Third story. We call it the prodigal son story. The word prodigal never shows up in the story. That's just what we've called it. It's the story of the younger brother. Uh, The younger brother goes to his dad he just, he was done. He was sick of the family systems. He was sick of the social customs. He was done with dad's rules and dad's demands. He goes to his dad and says, Father, give the property that will belong to me. The word property he uses is bios, which is another word for life. Give me my life. It wasn't just about assets. He was done. He was cutting himself off from the family The dad interestingly, the dad, at least in the story, doesn't seem to reject. He divides the property between them. Supposedly, the older brother was supposed to get two-thirds and the younger brother one-third. We're not sure how it's divided, but the younger brother gets something, and he goes off to a distant country, and he squanders it all in dissolute living. Who knows what dissolute living it is, but I get the impression it's not a great thing. He squanders it all in dissolute living, hires himself out to a citizen of the country, who sends him off to the pig fields, and he'd gladly eat the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything, and he wakes up. He comes to, how many hired hands in my father's house don't have bread and more to spare? So he, he gets up, he sets out. The, 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 the younger brother wanted freedom. He wanted independence. 
He was sick of the structures and the systems and the rules and the demands. Just leave me alone. Just let me be. So he goes off only to realize he's bound by a different set of rules. The rule of self. Bound by his own urges, his own instincts, his own impulses. He was pursuing freedom and independence only to realize he's bound. Helmut Tielicke, that German theologian, puts it like this. We're always subject to one master, either to God, and then we're in the Father's house, possessing the freedom of the children of God, sons and not servants, with constant access to the Father. Or we're subject to our urges, and therefore to ourselves, subject to our dependence on ourselves, subject to our fears, our worries. The younger son wakes up. He comes to himself. He was in search of freedom only to realize he's bound by himself. So he heads home. He heads to his father and his dad. His dad, I don't know, seems like his dad was kind of been looking for him for a long time. He sees him off at a distance and he's moved with compassion. That's, that's what I want you to notice. The father is moved with compassion. The son who says, you're dead to me. Now the father's moved with compassion. He runs to him, an act of utter humiliation for a Middle Eastern man. Runs to him, puts his arms around him and starts kissing him. He hugs him, he holds him, he keeps him close. He says to the slave, get a robe, the best one. Get a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. We gotta eat and celebrate. All because of the Father's heart of compassion. Compassion, not holding our past against us, not keeping us down because of all the mistakes we're so prone to make. Moved with compassion. That's the Father's heart. I got an email this week from a recent college grad. You're not supposed to have favorites uh, when you're a person, let alone a pastor, but kind of do, and he was one of my favorites when he was at Hope. He bright-eyed and open-spirited. I got an email this week. He didn't put it this way, but I'm, I'm interpreting. His eyes are dimming, and his heart is hardening. He had just found out that day that one of his dear friends about his age was diagnosed with an inoperable and incurable disease and it broke his heart and my friend doesn't isn't sure how to hold the pain and the goodness of God how do those go together so we're going to get together we're going to talk a few things out I'm not going to throw cliches at him God is good all the time all it, it might be true but when you're in the middle of that kind of pain it's not that helpful I'm not going to answer the problem of pain though there are responses it just it's not the response he needs in the midst of that kind of sadness. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask around. And, and I'm going to point to the God whose heart is so full of compassion. 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 He would send his son, his only son, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to enter into our situation, to take on suffering, to go to the grave so that suffering, death, and the grave don't get the last word, don't get the last laugh, because God is compassion. 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 Fourth story. It's the story of the elder son. We don't really think of this as one of the stories. We love the great prodigal son story, the 
darkness to light conversion story. We always love those stories. And the rest of us who grew up in the church, we don't really have a story. So we just kind of pass by this story, this older brother story. It's not really a story, is it? Well, again, the way the stories work. They funnel themselves to this moment, this elder brother moment, 100 sheep, 10 coins, two brothers, now the one. This isn't a story about the crazy younger brother. It's a story about the hard-hearted elder brother. And Jesus wants to know, what will we do? Each story follows a pattern. Something is lost. Someone searches. Something is found. There's a party. Sheep is lost. Shepherd finds it. Shepherd searches, shepherd finds it, friends and neighbors gather to celebrate. Coin is lost, woman searches, woman finds it, throws a party. Younger son is lost, father waiting, passively looking, hoping, and sees him and runs after him, searches out, finds him, throws a party. Elder brother, elder brother asks one of the slaves, what's going on? Your brother came home. Your father killed the fatted calf because he's back safe and sound. And he became angry and refused to go in lost. The father comes out and begins to plead with him, searches. Son, you've always been with me. All that's mine is yours found. And we're left to wonder, what will the elder son do? There's no party. There's no rejoicing. Will he come home? Will he come home? Will there be a party? We're left to wonder. Jesus tells the story, leaving us to wonder, leaving the the scribes and the Pharisees on that day to wonder, "Will, will you come home? And Luke is telling the story, wondering, will, will we? What will we do? What will we do? Eugene Peterson, in that book, Tell It Slant. There are some sins simply not accessible to the non-Christian, the person outside of faith. Only men and women who become Christians are capable of and have the opportunity for some sins with self-righteousness at the top of the list. The elder brother had been lost in his closeness. He never left. And yet he, he, was, he, he, he thought himself a slave. Father, for all these years I've worked as a slave, but you're my son. You're my eldest son. You're my beloved. I've worked for you like a slave. He was lost. Lost in his own self-righteousness. And the father comes out to him And the father pleads with him, and we're left wondering, what will he do? As a way of asking, what will we do? God's heart of hospitality, radical, reckless, careless, wonderful hospitality, inspired by a deep care for the image of God created in all of us, inspired by a deep compassion God has for each of us, leaves us asking, what will we do? What will we do? This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. What will we do? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.